If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And we're back on a Friday on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. We like Fridays. We talk about the news and then we go into the weekend. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, and Lisa Garvin, who all have big December plans because they're heading into the weekend, right? Yeah, road trip. Lots of Christmas shopping. (laughs) All right. Well, that's good. It's supposed to be 60 and windy as I'll get out tomorrow. We'll hope we don't have tornadoes. Let's get going. Does a new election law tucked into the recent state budget expose elections officials to charges for basic voter outreach? Aren't election officials supposed to do voter outreach? Laura, this was one of those big overreaches they did because of all of Donald Trump's stolen election nonsense. And they might have put some of their friends into jeopardy, it seems. Yeah, this I don't think that they intended this. The legislators wanted to make sure that their elections weren't bought and paid for. This was in response to Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg who provided millions of dollars for Ohio election administration last year. And that immediately there were some big suspicions from Republicans and others. Some county boards of elections decided they didn't want the grants because they didn't want the money attached to him. But some county prosecutors say this provision is so broad that it basically prohibits public officials involved in the election from any activity related to voter education. So there's been a couple county prosecutors worried enough to write a letter to Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost and basically say, is this going to change anything? Like, what are we allowed to do? It could make it a first degree misdemeanor for law enforcement to perform standard duties of protecting ballots or for election officials to work with private teachers or county groups or or nonprofits like the League of Women Voters to explain how voting works. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't even go into a school to talk to students about the value of voting if you read this literally. Look, this is a problem that we have whenever they pass the budget. They Instead of passing a budget, which is just supposed to be a financial document, they shove all sorts of stuff in with no discussion. Normally, you would propose this law. It would go to committees for hearings. And, hey, mm-hmm. somebody might point out, hey, you know, if they go into a school and talk to students about elections, they could be charged with a crime. And they go, oh, yeah, you're right. Let's not do that. That had none. Of, we had none of this. This was crammed in by Cop and Huffman with no discussion, no sunlight. And now, lo and behold, our elections officials could go to jail if they <laughs> do simple things like explain to people how to cast a ballot. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is barring government officials from collaborating, that's a quote, with any private organization on voter outreach, education, get out the vote, absentee voting, elections official recruitment or training or, quote, any other elections related purpose. I don't know how you write that and don't realize that it's too broad. It's, it's not like, oh, this was an oversight. I mean, this is really far reaching. Well, it's also, let's face it, it's a violation of the First Amendment. You can't stop people from talking about how to vote. That's, you just can't impair those rights. And if Dave Yost, he's not going to do this because he's a party hack now. 
But if he had any backbone, he would say, this is an unconstitutional law. You can't stop people from talking about how to vote. It's a basic part of conversation. Fascinating, though, it does point out what goes wrong when you have gerrymandered districts, supermajorities, and you abuse the budget procedure to cram in all sorts of stuff without discussion. We'll have to see if they fix it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why did Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost reject a proposed ballot initiative by anti-vaxxers to outlaw vaccine mandates? Lisa, this is a stupid law. It would allow people to send their kids to school unvaccinated and spread measles and chickenpox and all the things that are bad for kids. But it's kind of dead in its tracks at the moment. It is, but that doesn't mean it's over, of course. They can constantly refile what's known as an an, an initiated statute, which is what this is. Its formal title is Vaccine and or Gene Therapy Anti-Discrimination Act. It's similar to House Bill 248, which is languished in the legislature most of the year. But David Ghost uh, took issue with the ballot language. He had a lot of problems with the ballot language, and as we all know, it hinges on what we finally will see on the ballot. He said that they failed to explain several terms that they used, including passport, gene therapy, school, business, and personally identifiable information. It also fails to outline exceptions. There are apparently exceptions to this this statute that would allow K through 12 schools to keep their requirements for mumps, rubella, tetanus, poliomyelitis, pertussis, and diphtheria proof of immunization, which I did not know. I thought this outlawed all, you know, immunizations, but apparently some grandfathering going on. But that's what it says. He said it failed to outline exceptions, such as keeping this K to 12 uh, proof of vaccination thing. He also says the discrimination language in this you know, initiated statute goes beyond what's commonly known as discrimination. So they were kind of overreaching a little bit with that term. So what happens next? They can, you know, uh, refile it with the new language, but they have to get a thousand new signatures to do so. All right. So you're telling me something I didn't realize. So is this really pretty much focused on coronavirus vaccines then? I mean, if it has all those exceptions, those are the, the basics. So is this really aimed at prohibiting vaccine mandates for coronavirus that's probably that's probably the shadow intent of this but i think they wanted to throw the baby out with the bathwater. but yeah i was surprised when i read the article yesterday that it does there are exceptions in k-12 schools but this bill of course focuses on employers schools as well and hospitals but there are exceptions for hospitals too so yeah i don't know it's just just another attempt to yeah Right. It's more looniness from inmates running the asylum. I mean, the legislature tried to do this any number of ways. They didn't get it through, but now we have other people doing it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Are child care centers throughout Cleveland exposing children to lead in their water? Layla, I was not aware of just how dangerous this was. I didn't realize that we had lots of lead pipes serving where children are. Kind of scary. 
Yeah, it is kind of scary that the Cleveland Water Department wants to replace their their lead water pipes just to be sure. Uh, but they're having a hard time getting these child care centers to respond to their outreach, which is really kind of stunning. Earlier this year, the city identified 436 child care centers that are eligible to participate in a state funded line replacement program. The Ohio EPA has put up a million dollars to perform the work and the state's H2 Ohio water quality program has also put up $500,000. So the child care centers here wouldn't be responsible for any of this cost. Maybe that is lost in the messaging and that's why they're not returning their calls. But so far, only 196 of the eligible child care centers have responded to offers for inspections. And of those, 94 have had their lead water lines replaced. Another 10 are scheduled. The others that were inspected were found to be served with non-lead pipes most likely because they had already been switched out at some point. You know, buildings constructed after 1953 aren't likely to have lead service connections. So, but, you know, the rest of the eligible child care centers have been contacted multiple times with emails, phone calls, but for whatever reason, more than 200 of these facilities haven't responded. And a lot of the child care centers we're talking about are in residential homes because those are the ones most likely to be served by lead pipes. You know, now all of that said, I think it's important to note that the water department treats city water with a chemical called orthophosphate, and it creates a film on the inside of pipes and plumbing and forms a hard barrier that prevents lead from leaching into the water. So, you know, to the initial question of whether kids are being poisoned by lead in the water at their child care centers, the water department says that's unlikely, but you can't be too careful here, right? The lead, lead pipes should be replaced for sure. The bigger threat, of course, in Cleveland is lead paint. Exactly. The, the, the housing stock is loaded with it, and and there's been talk for years about finally and forever getting rid of it. It's a one-time expense to get rid of it if you remove it, not if you encapsulate it. Um, and, and there's been thought that you should use a lot of our stimulus money to do just that, and there, mm-hmm. there's a proposal to use some, but doesn't solve the problem. The bigger threat in Cleveland, though, it's unlike Flint, Michigan, it's from paint, not from the water. Right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How high has Ohio's chief metric for coronavirus cases suddenly risen? Laura, these numbers are going off the charts. Things are getting to record levels again. Hospitalizations and things are actually reaching their highest heights. What's the chief metric say? Right. This is the number of cases per 100,000 Ohio residents. And on Thursday, we hit 718.5. Last week, we were just at 601 cases per 100,000 residents. So I actually, I did not do the math on this to do the percent change, but that's a big increase. And the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says that rates above 100 cases per 100,000 mean that we have high transmission in the community. The thing is, we are higher than the first peak of the Delta wave at this point, and I don't know where we stand overall since we didn't really use this metric until 2021. Remember when Mike DeWine got in his primetime address and said, we want to get down to 50 in Ohio, and that'll show that we've really kind of kicked the COVID, and we did eventually get down to that for like a week or two last June, but yeah, it didn't stay down very low. Well, I in Ohio, the nonprofit journalism outfit in the state, 
has been doing regular reports on hospital capacity and ICU capacity, and the, their latest report says they're seeing levels in some of those areas that they've never seen before, which, which is striking because the vaccine's out there and half of Ohio is vaccinated or more. Right. I mean, it just, what, what feels odd is we all live in the mostly urban area, and I, it doesn't feel like we're surrounded by crisis here um, because largely the unvaccinated counties are rural, as we talked about earlier in the week. And so uh, you, if you lived in rural areas, you might feel this more. Um, but but uh, it's not like our hospitals aren't overloaded. I mean, we've had story after story this week about every basic hospital in Northeast Ohio pushing back non-essential surgeries and that they're all overloaded and the, the beds are full. And 62% of new admissions in coronavirus hospitalizations over the past two weeks apparently occurred in Northern Ohio, or according to Bruce Vanderhoff, the state chief of the Ohio Department of Health. So it's not like it's not here. It's, I mean, it is. Yep. But part of that is we have the capacity here. So True. I imagine there are people coming in from some of the rural areas. Look, there was this was predicted. Thanksgiving brought lots of people together as this surge was happening. And in, and we're now, what, two weeks later, and we're, we're way above it. I mean, it's gotten very bad, and Christmas will probably do it again. And this is all in advance of Omicron doing whatever it's going to do. We're still dealing with Delta. Right. It's striking, though. You went from 600 to 700 in a week. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's just how high will we go before we peak? How many times have we been here where we're when when will the peak come? When will the numbers start to drop? I mean, this is the fifth I wave know. of this thing. Right, the fifth wave. I was just going to say that. And you don't know how many waves they're going to be. We reported 8,500 new cases yesterday. That's above the 21-day rolling average of 6,329. And that, those numbers are really rivaling the worst that it got to be, which was December of 2020. What's interesting is for people who are triple vaccinated, they feel removed from this. I mean, we mm -hmm. had our newsroom holiday gathering last night at the new BrewDog, which is a fabulous place. And, you know, the people who got together there did so feeling like it's very low risk. They're triple vaccinated and they know that that largely protects them. And so you've really got this societal divide between the people who've chosen not to get vaccinated, who are hugely vulnerable to getting very sick and dying, and the people are, that have largely done the right thing and are pretty safe. I mean, I, Laura, you were there last night. Did you feel at any kind of risk? No, and I am triple vaccinated. And I've, I've felt this, you know, for the last couple of weeks that it's just this total dichotomy. But the thing is, if people are getting sick and they're not vaccinated, they're probably not staying home. So you don't know who when you're out and about who's vaccinated and who's not there could be people that are just throwing caution to the wind but you're right the people i know and the places i'm going are full of people that are just reveling and having a good time and enjoying a christmas season where they're not sheltering at home yeah i mean brew dog is huge and it was packed the parking lot is huge and it was jammed <laughs> i mean clearly people are not staying home so Okay. I stay you home. You, yes, I know. You have an unvaccinated <laughs> infant or yeah. toddler, and we get it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Do Northeast Ohio stores have the workers they need to deal with Christmas shopping? Lisa, we talk regularly about the worker shortage. Another 4 million people across the United States walked out of their jobs in November. You're having this mass defection of people saying, hey, take your job and shove it. I'll live without the money. So what's happening in retail? 
Yeah, the labor force issue is still an ongoing one, although a lot of retailers locally and nationally have found ways to adjust. Uh, In November, 331,000 retail jobs were filled, but that still leaves us at least 100,000 jobs behind where we were in November of 2019 before the pandemic. Uh, Companies are still having to use, it's become the norm actually, to offer signing bonuses and higher wages because that's oftentimes the only time you're going to get workers. Um, And of course, in seasonal uh, work, you do get parents who want to make extra money for Christmas. You get college kids who are home for the, you know, the holiday that are looking for extra money as well. So that's helping a little bit. But interestingly enough, a lot of small business owners find that they themselves are working more hours to fill in the gaps in their employment and to help when things are busy. And another interesting thing is that technology really hasn't reduced the need for human employees. I mean, a lot of companies during the pandemic pivoted to self-checkout centers, mobile scanning, um, even robots in in warehouses to do the work that humans used to do, but they still need humans to do these jobs. And despite all of this, the National Retail Federation is saying that uh, there's going to be a lot of money spent this year. They're expecting... $843 843 to $859 billion to be spent this, this holiday season. That's up from $777 billion uh, last year. And in Ohio, they're expecting about $31.5 billion to be spent during this holiday season. That's up over 7%. So retailers, they're resilient. I mean, they're still, you know, trying to plug employment holes in their, in their roster, but they're managing to be resilient about it. I don't know. I was at a Home Depot over the weekend in Cleveland Heights. There was one cashier working that had a long line, and then there was a 15-minute long line snaking through the store for the four self-checkouts, something I've really never seen before. You guys all go out and shop at different places. Have you seen longer lines and fewer people working? Yes and no. I mean, I I went to Dillard's and there was, I mean, every makeup counter had a person behind it. Usually there's one person for all the makeup counters. I mean, they were practically tripping over themselves. And then I went to Macy's the same day and there was one lady trying to unpack inventory and run the cash register. So it's kind of wildly divergent. (laughs) Yeah, bless her heart. Wow. So we had the story. Well, we had the story last week about how Mike DeWine's strategy for getting people back into these jobs kind of fell flat. uh, You know, taking away the the extra unemployment uh, bonuses and things like that from the feds. So, do we have a handle yet on why people are not returning to the jobs? I mean, what what else are they doing? What else are they doing? I just am wondering what what else. You're. It's interesting. There's a nonprofit agency in town that is going to do a study in Cleveland because there's a bunch of theories on this. I mean, yeah, what I mean, are one they? Of them, one of the theories is that people, when they when they ended up staying home during the early part of the pandemic, realized they liked life staying at home, could live on fewer dollars, and hated their jobs, and so are not going back, and you're seeing a lot of people quitting. But, but who knows? I mean, I think focus groups with the people that have left the workforce will tell, and I think that's the goal of the agency is, like, why... Why yeah. have you? But gone? If, I mean, our, if every business needs workers and they're offering you know stay-at-home jobs with better pay, like why are you going to sign up to work retail? It's not a super fun job. I say this for someone who folded a lot of jeans at the Gap. <laughs> I I look. I think I think this is a a moment of workforce revolution in America that a lot of people realize that we're working for crummy wages 
in jobs that were not rewarding while the people at the top got rich as hell. And they're I'm not but, doing that anymore. But I think that um, I, I just am having a hard time understanding how it is that people can afford not to not to work. I, I mean, that well, isn't but, that. But, but Layla, think about it. Right. You have you have three children. Yeah. And if you you know the cost of daycare and so if you're you I'm not suggesting this in any way and if you do it I'll be really upset but if you decided <laughs> to suddenly stop working and stay at home you know you you would have one the joy of being with your kids and doing what you do uh, you would save all the money that you might have to spend on childcare and I think people learn to live a little bit it would be hard you know, it would be really hard and if I didn't have a spouse who's working, right? Which, I'm saying that if you would have be a spouse that's... very hard. And Look, and right. I mean, you know, I, I just I, I, I can understand that's the case for some people. But there are a lot of people who are making that choice so much so that it's affecting the economy in this profound way. And I, I just want to know more about that I, dynamic. No, we'll, we'll get that. But I did okay. grow up. I'm older than you. Uh, I did grow up at a time when most families were single income families. They many had a single automobile. Uh, it changed as I was growing up. More and more uh, women entered the workforce. But but you might have men and women both choosing now to go back to that and living on a single income, living a little bit more within tighter means because they weren't getting any reward from their jobs and they have enjoyed what they can do with their families at home. I don't know. We'll see. I it It's like the whole nation has gone on strike. They're like, you don't yeah. pay me enough. My job's not rewarding. I don't get joy from it. I'm not doing it anymore. And it's really changed the whole dynamic. You go into stores, shelves are empty and you know, everybody's having trouble. I mean, I don't blame people at all for feeling that way. I just want to know how, how are they making ends meet? Out yeah. I, I do hope it means yeah. that, you know, it's another re revolution in the workforce that we, I don't really th see us talking through these questions. Like Layla, you're right. I haven't seen a lot of studies on it, but I think there is a reckoning here for what people want out of an employer and a job and a family life. It goes beyond that though. I mean, wages have been stagnant for 40 years while executive pay has gone yes. through the stratosphere. That wasn't the way it was in most of the 20th century. In the mm -hmm, 20th mm -hmm. century, the middle class was real and it saw real gains. But people work in retail, get paid nothing. Right, I mean, it's, right. it's just not enough to for people to feel sustained. We yeah. need to get back to a time in this country where the profits of business are shared more. Right. Than, a redistribution of the wealth for them. sure. For sure. I hope yeah. that is what's being forced here. But I am I'm very interested in knowing how the studies shake out on on you know the social dynamic here and how people are actually surviving out in the world without without mm -hmm. this employment. It's it's I really think, fascinating. I think it's a silent modern version of pitchforks and torches. <laughs> people have just said, we're done with you rich folks. Go figure it out on your own. <laughs> we'll see. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What is the thinking behind the House passing a bill to prohibit tax levies in special elections in August? Laura, we all know that school districts, when they get rejected on taxes, try to get sneaky and bypass voters in August when everybody's summer vacationing and get them through. They don't take no for an answer, even though the voters speak. Is the House trying to stop them from doing that? Well, yes. And I, I think 
the thing is, it's not just in August. This is not the only time that we have special elections that cost taxpayers a lot of money to hold them. But this bill, House Bill 458, would allow August special elections only to fill vacant congressional seats, which actually has happened twice this year for Ohio's 11th and 15th congressional districts. That means basically Ohio would largely shift to holding two elections a year, the primary, which is in the spring, and the general election in November. This was voted along mostly party lines on Thursday. Some of the no votes came from Democrats. And the idea is that they don't want local governments gaming the system. But the, the minute I saw this, I was thinking, it's it's not just August. So I went back to the Board of Elections website and looked at past elections. We've had on August 3rd, 2021. We had February 23rd, 2021, which was a Woodmere recall election. There was both a March and a May in one year. I mean, there's obviously September municipal elections. So if, this is not going to get rid of all of the extra expense. Is the, the one thing that I... I don't see in this is a prohibition on primary elections and things in these off year. Cleveland obviously has its primary for mayor and council in September, leaving only six weeks for general election, which mm-hmm. people have criticized. That's not really enough time for a general election battle. Most of the rest of the world either has a March or a May primary, and then you have eight or six months to to duke it out for the general election. This doesn't prohibit that, though, it doesn't appear. Nope. nope, it doesn't prohibit anything but the August one. So tell me if we're allowed to have a February special election. And you think about it, all of the charters for all of the cities in, I think, 57 cities in Cuyahoga County, cities and villages, have their own rules on when the filing deadlines are and when the primaries are and if they're partisan primaries or not partisan primaries and if there's runoffs. We've had December runoff elections before. So I don't disagree with the idea that we should streamline our elections, but I think we should take a bigger approach and look at the elections we're having and where we can winnow that down. Because I don't think just saying, hey, no, August, we're off the table is really that effective. Okay, it is unusual why they're only targeting that. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Reporter Hannah Drown has put together a guide to Christmas trees with some practical advice based on what you want to do with the tree. Actually, there are differences in how people approach their Christmas trees. <laughs> so, Layla, what are the highlights of what she's found? Hannah always comes up with these great ideas that are so helpful for, for her stories. Many many people, you know, perhaps have, have their standby favorite Christmas tree variety that they buy year in and year out. I personally love the Fraser furs, but, you know, <clears throat> you know when you have little kids or pets or heavy heirloom, you know, ornaments, perhaps you need to find that perfect tree that's less prickly or retains its needles or has stronger branches. It's it's kind of astounding how different the varieties are in these regards. So Hannah broke it all down for readers. She found that fir trees have stiff branches that can handle those heavy ornaments. They're soft to the touch. They have short, flat needles, good needle retention, and a strong fragrance. And specifically, the balsam fir tends to be the most fragrant, one of the reasons that it's, it's among the most popular Christmas tree choices. But then, you know, you have the Canaan furs that have a less strong fragrance. But, you know, who in the world would want that? The smell is literally the point of having a real tree, isn't it? Um, And then there are the pine trees. Uh, They have a very full profile and needles that grow in bundles rather than individually. And even though pine trees aren't as strong as fir and spruce trees, the extra long needles give them a very full appearance. Uh, Scotch pines have strong branches, a very light aroma, bright green color, but, but very sharp needles. 
I mean, they literally draw blood. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> the deal breaker for me. White pines have soft needles and flexible branches. And then there are spruce trees that have strong branches and can hold a lot of decorations. And they really resemble that traditional Christmas tree shape. They have moderate needle retention, subtle fragrance. And, but although, you know, the experts say it can, can sometimes be an unpleasant fragrance and the needles are prickly. But there's lots of great advice in here for anyone who's looking for um, looking for the guidance and gets a little lost on the tree lot. <laughs> yeah, because I think most people go in, they pull it off of the rail and they look at it and they spin it around and say, okay, it looks good to me. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. And yeah, I would say if you need to it. wear like gardening gloves to decorate your tree, you picked the wrong one. That is way too prickly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Okay, Laura, here you go. Let's turn to our resident <laughs> ski buff for details on how this ski season is looking. There's some changes afoot that I think you're excited about. There are changes afoot, and I'm hoping the weather cooperates. Boston Mills is already making snow. They've been piling it up. Of course, we're going to get 60 degrees and maybe tornadoes this weekend, so I'm hoping that pile doesn't disseminate too much. But it's looking like a good ski season um, as far as people getting interested in the sport. I think last year with COVID, it was one of the few activities you could do safely, and ski resorts reported 59 million skiing and snowboarding visits during 2020 and 2021. That's the fifth highest total on record. And more people are choosing to stay close to home because they weren't going to fly out to the Rockies to ski. So places like Boston Mills, Alpine Valley, Brandywine, they did better. And those are owned by Vail Resorts. Vail's owned them for this is the third season now. And this week, I was just talking to our travel writer, Susan Glazer, who puts together a fantastic ski report every year. And I was saying, oh, I just want Vail to buy something close by so I can go. And lo and behold, they bought Seven Springs, uh, Laurel Highlands, and Hidden Valley it, close to Pittsburgh, about three hours away. So it's not going to affect us this year. But next year, anyone with that season's epic pass from Vail is going to be able to, to go there next year, which is... You- you cool. have yours already for oh, this season? Uh, yes. I mean, I bought it in April. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, it's exciting. I'm pl- planning to go to Holiday Valley over the um, end of the year break, which will be really nice. So, And I'm hoping to get out to Whistler. But um, actually, I got, just got my skis tuned up at Geiger's, and they had a three-week wait to get it done. So, I mean, people must be buying skis like crazy and getting them tuned up. I've never had to wait that long. Yeah, you know, though, if you look at the weather forecast for the next week, there's not any cold no weather. I know. I know. It, Climate change is like the enemy of skiers. I know, but it's like my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I know. You're always like, oh, if it's 60 degrees in December, it's great. I mean, they always try to open by Christmas. That's when people get their, their new gear and they're just so excited to get out. And people don't have a lot of time before the holidays, but that's not looking great for this year so hopefully by new year's i mean they can make snow when it's about 28 degrees so if it gets down to that at night they can make it so fingers crossed i don't know lisa you're gonna be in worcester you might be able to sit outside layla you won't have to wrap everybody up in warm coats as you go christmas shopping this weekend i do want to add though that what we were talking about with the shortage of workers is really affects the ski industry because you need a lot of people to work the lifts and the food service and everything and Vail requires their workers to be vaccinated you also have to be vaccinated if you want to eat inside so it's going to be really interesting to see if they have enough lifties to run all the lifts you have wait you have to be vaccinated to eat in inside yes how do you so when you come inside you have to show your vaccination card or what's I, the... this has not happened before but that is the rule so we'll see how they implement it 
How are you going to okay. be rummaging around your, your ski gear for your vaccination card? It's going to be in my phone. <laughs> it's got to be in my phone with the pictures. But yeah, even the kids. Maybe they'll create a ski glove with a little pocket window <laughs> where you can keep your, Good your card. Good idea. It's right. a Shark Tank maybe, idea. Or maybe the app that everybody talks about in Europe can come to America. We'll see. You're listening to Today in Ohio, and that does it for another week of discussions by the gang here at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens. Have a good weekend. We'll be back Monday. <laughs>